begin our reading of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and beginning in verse 1. It says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. When I was in college, I remember every college course that I took, the very first day you were handed a syllabus. And that syllabus gave you started out with all the course requirements. It told you how much outside reading you were going to have to do in the class and assignments that were due at different points. Like if you had research papers, it had the, the, the due date for those research papers was there. had the date of your final. And had all that stuff in there to have you totally prepared so that you would not be caught off guard or surprised in the end. Now, as I look at this passage, that is exactly what God is trying to do for us here in this passage is He's taking out the surprise. You know, the syllabus that each professor gave me at the beginning of the class Outline exactly when everything was due. Everything that you need to know. They wanted you to be successful. You would have no surprises coming up to the end. You wouldn't be surprised by the date of a paper. You wouldn't be surprised by uh, whether you got your outside reading done. You wouldn't be surprised by the final or the date of the exam. Everything was above board so that you would not be surprised and fail. Well, as he's writing here to these believers in the Thessalonian church, that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, look, he says there's going to be this date coming that's the day of the Lord, and there's going to be a lot of people surprised at that date, a lot of people that are going to face God's wrath and judgment because they weren't prepared, they didn't put their faith in Christ. But he tells them, you should not be surprised. This day is going to come like a thief in the night, but you should not be surprised. Because he's given them the syllabus. In this letter, he's saying, this is what you need to know about the day of the Lord. And it's not something that's new to them. Well, the day that he's talking about is a term called the day of the Lord. And as you go down through this passage, there are five different necessities for preparing for the day of the Lord. The first essential to being prepared for the day of the Lord is that we'd have a proper understanding There's some things that he's telling them about the day of the Lord, things that he's explaining to them that will help them to have a better understanding of what's going to be taking place. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the first three verses, it says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. I think that that very first part of it says, now concerning the times and seasons, I think that's actually kind of referring to both of these things, right? Last week we looked at the resurrection that would take place. Jesus said that when He comes, He's going to be bringing the souls of the people with Him who have already died in Christ. The first thing that happens is He's going to resurrect their bodies and they'll be reunited with their souls. And as soon as that happens, 
the rapture, those who are alive and remain will be caught up to be with Him in the air. Now, in this passage, in verse 1, it says, now concerning the times and the seasons. I think this is referring back to that instant and the day of the Lord. Right When Christ comes back, He's going to resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture the believing church. And then, boom, the day of the Lord happens. Well, as we've considered here this morning, what do we learn about the day of the Lord? First of all, we learn that it is a time of wrath. While people are saying there's peace and security, their sudden destruction will come upon them. This is going to be the time when God's wrath is initiated in the world. God for 2,000 years has been patiently waiting for people to come to Christ, to put their faith in Him, and to be delivered from the wrath to come. That's a primary message of the New Testament. But there's a time where that patience comes to an end and the wrath of God begins to pour out on the world. In Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9-11, through 11, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Amos would say in chapter 5, verses 18-20, through 20, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord! Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I love his analogies there. He says, man runs away from a lion only to find a bear. This is a bad day. He's saying, why, why would anybody want this day? Why would anybody look forward to this day when that's what it entails? That's what the day of the Lord encompasses. It describes that wrath of God that is finally going to be exercised on mankind. You know, that's the whole point of the cross. The cross I never understood for quite a few years. I never realized that my sin was so horrible before God. That my sin invited the wrath of God. You know, we don't see our sin as all that ugly because we're in it. It's, it feels almost normal to us. But the Bible says that we need to see our sin as God does, which is exceedingly sinful. Our sin is not trivial. It's not a small thing. It would take the life of the Son of God to pay for it. My sin was exceedingly sinful. And you realize, when Jesus went to the cross, and I agree with most commentators who say, I think probably the most painful thing for Him was when He shouts out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? This relationship that He's had with the Father for eternity past, and now God the Father turns His back on Him as He endures our sin. You know what was happening right there? Wrath. The wrath of God was being poured out on His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why it's so very unnecessary for us to be surprised and face the wrath of God when that day comes. Because the wrath has already been taken care of at the cross for anyone who will embrace that cross in faith. But that's also why there's, even though Isaiah and Amos were focusing just on the wrath and what the day of the Lord stands for, the wrath of God coming upon the world, Joel also recognizes there's a goodness too. And then there's an opportunity. And what Joel points out in chapter 2 is that it's a time of salvation as well. 
First Thessalonians, I think we see it in the connection between chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. First thing that's going to happen, Jesus is going to come back and catch us up to be with Himself. Raise the dead in Christ. Catch up the believers that are left. Then, the wrath of God comes. There is so close in time that there is both. And so we see the salvation as well. Joel would point that out in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. That's what they would do at a time to show sorrow and repentance. They would tear their clothes. God says, I'm not interested in your clothes. Don't tear your clothes. Tear your heart. Don't let it just be an external display. Let it be an internal reality. He says, don't rend your garments, rend your heart, return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Why has it been, as the scoffers will mock and say, it's been 2,000 years since Christ was here the first time? He's not coming. Oh yes, He is. But why has it been 2,000 years? Why so long? God is patient. God is waiting. For what? For this to happen. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord. Repent. Experience salvation. He delights in the salvation of the lost. Joel would continue to write, and when you get up to verses 31 and 32, it says, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And so I think Joel is referring to the escape that we find in the resurrection and the rapture. Once those are taken place, then what does the Apostle Paul says? He says they will not escape. After that, at that point, they will not escape. You see, the salvation through the resurrection and the, and the rapture, people taken all the way, and then, and then the expression of God's wrath as uh, He brings that down upon the world. You know, it's the same thing that Peter talked about. In Second Peter chapter 2, he gives these two examples. He says, If he did not spare the ancient world, talking about during Noah's time, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The example is that God knows how to rescue the godly and destroy the ungodly at the same time. The lesson is not just for those of Noah's day, not just for those of of Lot's day. The lesson is for us because the time is coming again, the day of the Lord, when God is going to do what? He's going to rescue the believers and He's going to bring wrath and judgment upon the unbelievers. So it is a day of wrath. It is a day of salvation. It is also a day of surprise. Like a thief in the night. The whole point of a thief coming in the night is so he can't be seen. It's successful or it fails based on whether or not anybody's aware that you're there. Another analogy he uses, he says it's going to come like labor pains. Now, I remember when Lisa was pregnant with our daughter Hannah. Now, this is number five, right? We've been through this a few times. By we, I mean mostly. <laughs> I, was, I saw it. I watched the birth. Number five, we know what's coming. You know what? There was a day when all of a sudden Lisa got labor pains and it came on like right now. And all of a sudden she goes, 
oh no, I remember this. I don't want to do this. <laughs> and it was all of a sudden, boom, it hit. This is real. And that's what it's going to be like. It's going to be a day of surprise. It's going to come like a thief in a night. It's going to come like labor pains on a pregnant woman. In Luke chapter 17, verses 26 through 30, Jesus says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so it will be, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Matthew chapter 24 records the event this way. He says, For as, the day, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage till the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. All normal things. It's just another day. They're getting up in the morning. They're, they're making breakfast. They're eating. They're drinking. Those are things we do all the time. People were getting married. People were building stuff. People were buying stuff. People were selling things. This another day until the flood comes and what? And they are swept away. In fact, notice what's, what's on the lips of the people. He says that it's going to be a time when people are proclaiming peace. Peace. Everything's good. Everything's tranquil. And he says, but there is no peace. This is the understanding that he gives them about the day of the Lord. It's a day of wrath. It's a day of salvation as they'll be pulled out before through the resurrection and the rapture. But then it's also a day of surprise. But he tells them what? It shouldn't surprise you. You shouldn't be caught off guard. Why? you got the syllabus. You know what's coming. And you're going to be ready because our faith was in Christ. Then we also see a proper perspective in verses 4-8. through Because he says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be, keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And so he uses a couple of analogies to give them what their perspective needs to be. In other words, their, their mindset. What are things that they delight in? He says, you know, you're not, you're not children of the night. You're day people. John MacArthur in his commentary he says, you got night people and you got day people in this world. The believers in Jesus Christ are day people. Unbelievers are night people. And he says the kind of the point that he's making here is that a day person does not have a night life. And he doesn't, doesn't live in the darkness. He lives in the light. Because we're children of the light, we see when we can see clearly. And that's what he's saying. This shouldn't surprise you. Why? Because you're of the day. Everything, the lights are on. You can see. He uses the other analogy of soberness and drunkenness. He says, you are sober. The word is watchful, alert, awake. The word for awake is, uh, actually my name comes from it. It's Gregorio. He says, you need to not be asleep. Why? Because you're not of the night. People sleep at night. People get drunk at night. You're not of the night. You are of the day. The asleep person doesn't know what's going on. The drunk person doesn't care what's going on. And we need to be aware and we need to be alert. The world is going to go on like nothing's happening. The Christians in the day, he knows that God cares about how we're living and he knows that God cares about the decisions we make in our life and, and he knows that God cares about our salvation and our, our whole future and eternity. He knows about all of these things. And so we're not going to be asleep. We're going to be awake. We're not going to be drunk. We're going to be sober. 
Proverbs talks about this drunkenness in chapter 23, verse 29 to 35. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at the wine when it is red. When it sparkles in the cup, it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like the one who lies on top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. You know, unfortunately, I've had some alcoholic consumption in my past. I would just say an amen on the end of that whole proverb. It didn't bring anything good in my life. It brought only hardship. It was brought through that. It got me in trouble with my family. It got me in trouble in school. It got me in trouble with the law. It got me in trouble in many different ways. It brings trouble in relationships. It really, we need no part of it. When you're under the influence of alcohol, which a Christian is told to not be under the influence of alcohol, but be controlled by the Spirit. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. We're supposed to be controlled by the Spirit of God, not the spirits that come from uh, alcoholic consumption. That's not for us. My experience, when you get under the influence of alcohol, you say stupid things. And you do stupid things. And you hurt other people. And you know what? I don't want any part of it in my life. You know, I also think of another proverb, chapter 31, verse 4 through 9. It says, It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth. For the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Now, obviously, Lemuel is a king, and I'm not a king. But you know what? I read through this passage, and his mom's writing to him, and she's saying, look, you should stay away from mixed drink. You're the king. People depend on you for righteous judgments, and people depend on you for upholding the law. People depend on you for their quality of life. You know what? I might not be a king, but there's people that depend on me for things. I don't ever want... For my wife to need me and me be incapacitated to be able to help her. I don't ever want for my kids to be in a situation where they need me and not, me not be fit to be able to deal with whatever it is they're going through. I don't care if it's a phone call in the middle of the night for advice or a phone call that needs a ride to an emergency room. or a, I don't care what it is. And I recognize that I don't have limited control in this. But this is an area I have control. And I don't ever want to put myself in a place where I'm not fit to be there for the people that depend on me, to be there for the family and friends that I have around. I want my right mind to be able to deal with. I might have limited abilities, but I want all of those abilities to be able at any time. And you know what? That's what he's, he's telling us. He says, look, people that get drunk, get drunk at night. Why? Because it's a dark thing to do. It's something that brings shame. That's why it's done at the same, same time of day that people are robbing things and stealing things. We're not of the night. We're of the day. So we keep awake. And we stay sober. The world may not be concerned about what's happening on the timeline of God as far as when the day of the Lord comes, but we're watching for it. That is our perspective. You know, Romans, the Apostle Paul put it well in chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. He says, The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual morality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know what? That's what it takes to be ready for that 
day of the Lord. Well, then uh, he also focuses on the proper graces. We have the proper understanding of the day of the Lord. What exactly is it? We have the proper perspective that we're going to be children of the, of the day, keeping our eyes open. The proper graces, he says in verse 8, but we, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Back in chapter 1, that was the first thing he commended them for. Remember, he commended them for their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. When you're looking at the day of the Lord, that's still how you be successful. Are those things in your life? You know, I think the Thessalonians thought, you know, maybe we need something more extravagant as they were looking forward toward the day of the Lord coming back. When you read Second Thessalonians, you find that some of them quit their jobs to get ready for Jesus' return and they were taking extravagant measures and he's saying, that's not it. It's those things you were already doing. Faith. Hope. Love. That's what you do. No matter what's going on in the world around us, you know what the pillars of the Christian faith are? Faith. Love. Hope. You need to keep focused there. Keep, keep trudging there. You know, might be tempted like the Corinthian church to say, no, it's about giftedness. It's a, at times like this, we need giftedness. And God definitely gave gifts to the church and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit into your life, give you gifts to use to benefit other people. But you know what? Giftedness is not really where our focus needs to be. We use our gifts, but the focus is faith, love, hope. It's those three things. It's those graces. Those are what we need to continue to grow on. doesn't matter if Jesus Christ's return is today or in a thousand years. We need to be growing in our faith and our love and our hope. That's where it's at. That's where the rubber meets the road in our, in our Christian life. But then, not only do we have proper graces, we also have a proper dependence. Because in verses 9 and 10, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Two things here that make us secure. Two reasons that we're safe. They're both God's work. One is that God does not destine us for wrath. In fact, we read in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we don't experience His wrath. And so this day of the Lord, this day of wrath that's coming upon the world, you're not going to experience it. You're going to experience the salvation from this. And so that's what they're to depend on. They're just to depend on Jesus Christ who laid down His life for them, shed His blood on that cross for them so that they could experience that eternal life and, and have confidence that they're then delivered from the wrath of God. They're not going to experience it. But then He also goes through, He says not only did He not destine you for wrath, but He destined you for salvation. He predestined us, even the Ephesians tells us in other places. He elected us. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And so we find everything that we need in Christ. As He warns about this day of the Lord and says there's going to be this day that's going to come by surprise, take people like a thief in the night, how do you be ready? Just continue to depend on Christ. Just trust in Him. It's all about Him. Our salvation is found in Him and nothing else. Now, there's a little bit of it's hard to understand exactly what this is saying. Because notice he goes back to the asleep and awake thing again. Now, in chapter 4, he talked about asleep and awake. Asleep meant they were dead in Christ, and awake meant they were alive in Christ. Well, now he started talking about those who are asleep, as in those being lost, unbelieving. And it's also a different word for asleep, but, but pretty similar. Both, both words can be used to mean death. Both, both words can be used to mean asleep to your spiritual responsibilities and, and the things that are coming. So very similar words, but yet different. Now, 
when he gets to this part of the passage, he says, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now, what is he saying? Because he just got done telling us we need to be awake and not asleep. Right? We need to be paying attention and not focusing elsewhere. So, is he saying that in the end, whether or not we're awake or asleep, doesn't really matter, we're still saved? Well, there isn't, there isn't a, a, a nugget of truth in there. Because the fact of the matter is, you're saved by your faith in Christ, not by your ability to stay alert. But it just seems weird that the Apostle Paul would do all this thing to encourage them to be alert, be awake, be watching, be ready, and then say, but if, even if you're not, you're still saved. That just doesn't seem to fit. Or does it mean asleep versus awake, as in back in chapter 4? The passage directly connected to this. Right? Because then, then it would mean whether you have died or you're still alive. Remember, they were worried about their grandma and grandpa or whoever they knew who had died before Christ came back. And they're worried, what's their state? And He told them, oh, don't worry, they're going to be caught up before you and then you're going to be raised up to be with them. And so it's all going to be good. I think that probably refers back to that. Asleep or awake, whether you have died in Christ or you're awake, you're saved. You're going to be rescued during this time. Now, the problem with it is this. The word, like my name, Gregory, Gregorio, that word is always used of alertness. It's never used to just describe somebody as being alive. And so if this word is now used this way, this is the only place in the New Testament or in other literature that we know of where it's used that way. So grammatically, it looks like it would be talking about those who are alert versus not alert. But the context of the passage looks more like it would refer to those who, either, whether you're dead in Christ or alive in Him. I don't really know how to come to the end of that one, to be honest with you. I lean toward the context. I lean toward it's a final encouragement that those people, whether they were dead in Christ or still alive in Him, they are going to be with Him forever because He shed His blood on that cross for all of you. I think that one makes the most sense to me, but let it be what it is. Well, very lastly, we find a proper engagement. They were involved. He's, he's telling them to get involved, to be involved in something here. And notice the very last verse. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This information that they've got is meant to encourage them and strengthen them. And they're to use it to encourage and strengthen one another. It's the same thing that he concluded the, the passage in chapter 4, verse 18 with. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. The church is a body of believers. We are the body of Christ conducting His ministry in this world. And a big part of our ministry is growing the body of Christ. Building up the body of Christ. Which means I need to be encouraging you. You need to be encouraging me and one another. And that's, that's what the church is for. If we're not engaged in that, if we're not plugged in, if we're not involved in building one another up, we're missing out and the whole church is missing out. You know, the fact of the matter is, I hope you're blessed every time you come to church. And that's part of the equation we're supposed to be. But you know, if you're only focused on whether you're blessed, you're missing a huge part of it. The main reason that we go to church, in fact, you look at the book of Hebrews where it gives us a direct command to not forsake the assembling together of ourselves as some people are in the habit of doing. And you'll always have some people in the habit of doing that. What is the opposite of forsaking the assembly? It's to encourage one another. You see, when you come in here each week, your goal ought to be to encourage somebody else. 
to build somebody else up? What can I do to speak something into somebody else's life, to encourage somebody in, in one way or another? It's not hard. I'll tell you this, just your presence here encourages a lot of people. I don't know how many people come up to me in the last six months or a year and said, man, I just, I'm just so excited every week to see what God is doing in our church because He's just bringing more and more people coming in and, and He's just blessing us in so many different ways and it's so exciting to see and you're hearing people sing. And, but you know what? We need to reach beyond that. How can we be an encouragement, be something that, someone that builds somebody else up within the body of Christ? We need to be engaged in that process. Well, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is an amazing thing. To be ready for it, we need a proper understanding of it. We need a, we need a proper perspective. that We're going to walk as children of the day. Not in drunkenness, but in sobriety. With alertness. Watching the things that are around us. We're going to be involved in the proper graces. Be continuing to grow in that faith, hope, and love. Exercising a proper dependence upon Jesus Christ. We just continue to anchor our faith in Him. And engaged in the proper activities which is to build one another up in Him.